Medieval. We have a fabulous treat for you today. One of my favourite authors is joining us to walk, to talk about um, his last Templar series, which I hadn't realised has been going since 1995, and he's up to something like 32 books. So please give a huge welcome to Michael Jex. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. I've been looking forward to this. Now, first question. The last Templar series began way back in 1995. What made you decide to pair up Simon Puttock, a local bailiff from Crediton, and Baldwin de Fernzil, a former Knights Templar, as your lead characters? Well, basically, I've been a computer salesman for 13 years. By the time I started writing, uh, I actually had 13 jobs in 13 years, which was not exactly perfect, but it was the time of the recession in the 80s and the early 90s. And every company I worked for went bust, owing me money. So at the end of that stage, I thought, I've got to do something different. What can I do? And I thought, I love reading. Let's see if I can try writing. So I gave myself three months to see if I could write a book. And I actually wrote a brilliant book called The Sniper, which had bombs, bullets, sex, <laughs> a certain amount of rock and roll. It was a great book, and it was accepted over the phone by um, a delightful lady at Bantam Press and rejected three days later in writing because it was all about the ruddy IRA and they'd just agreed their first ceasefire, so it was out of date. So I had this incentive to write something that was slightly older and where the history wouldn't change too quickly because I hadn't met Ian Mortimer yet by then. <laughs> I read a book by John J. Robinson called... Dungeon, Fire and Sword, which is right here on my bookshelf, actually. <laughs> Big red cover. You see, I, all my books are here. I know where they are. They, it may look like a mess, but I know where they are. But um, that was a really inspiring book because it gives the full history of the Templars from their inception of the first of the First Crusade through to their destruction. And one of the things that got me about it was that not all the Templars were captured and killed when... The French king decided to dispose of them. I thought, what would have happened to a Templar who wasn't actually in one of the preceptories and who escaped? Maybe he would have gone back to the land where he had been born. And I thought, I like Dartmoor. I quite like the idea of writing about Dartmoor. It's an excellent location because you go onto the moors, you can walk for five minutes away from a car, and it is a medieval landscape. It's very quiet. And unless the RAF is doing a practice overhead for the day, you could be at any stage in Dartmoor's history. So I like the location. And I thought, well, if I brought this knight back somewhere around there, that would be good. And the previous year, we'd got married in Devon at Tiverton. And coming back from the register office, we passed Fursden Manor, which is a manor that's one of those rare places. It's still owned by the same family that originally stole the land from the Saxons. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hugh de Furzen, I think it was, it was either Hugh or Walter, I forget, turned up in the 1200s and nobody seems to know where he came from. But somebody in a very boring, wet afternoon drew up the family tree in the dining room. And my wife and I wandered around to have a look at the place and saw this family tree. And I thought, that's fascinating, because I'd just read this book about the Templars. I thought, what if he had, had turned up a few years later and um, he was an ex-Templar, a renegade? thought that could make an interesting idea for a story. But I, I had this thought that he would make a superb investigator because he'd be used to the idea of war, used to the idea of death. He had experienced sieges and so on. And he would have a great understanding of politics and lots of other aspects of life that would make him a good investigator. And then I thought he'd also be the worst investigator on the planet because he wouldn't know the local people. He wouldn't know the customs. He wouldn't know the local rules. Um, so he'd obviously need a sidekick. And I always thought if I was ever going to write a crime series, I'd want to have a Holmes and Watson type of um, couple where one is the more grounded local person and the other is the slightly highfalutin one. But getting the two of them to work together, I thought, would make it a much more interesting experience for the reader. So I had this idea that I needed someone else who was more of a local and while I was doing some research I discovered that there was this chap called Stephen Puttock who was a serf owned by the Bishop of Ely in about 1300 and he was a Thatcherite serf I mean everything he did the bishop took 10% so the bishop was quite happy but he started out in life with nothing <laughs> and he ended up with a row of cottages he was renting out he had two sheep folds he had his own flocks of sheep he was a real little Thatcherite and making a fortune. And he was a bailiff. And I thought, of course, a bailiff. He would have a full understanding of all the local customs, all the local people, the works. Yeah. So that was the sort of immediate outbreak. And I, I decided I wouldn't use the name Thursden because I didn't want to get sued. So I changed it to Fertile. <laughs> and I didn't want to take Stephen Puttock's name completely because it seemed to me that... Um, Using someone who was a real person was sort of um, a bit of an insult because you might put the wrong ideas into his head that he would have thoroughly disapproved of. I mean, put it in these terms. I would really dislike the idea that someone in 200 years thinks, Jex, yes, I'll write about him. He's going to be vegan. He's going to be anti-blood sports. He's going to. And they'll put lots of ideas into my head that don't exist. I'll be a cat lover rather than a dog lover. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd come back and haunt him, and I'm sure that Stephen Puttock would as well. But um, yeah. I like the name Puttock because uh, a good friend of one of my brothers, Andy, is called Puttock. And when I looked up his name, it's a hawking term. It's when your hawk is just about to drop. So I, I think it's wavering, waiting before it's going to drop. So I thought that's a good old English name. I can use that. So Puttock and Fernsill. Mm. They work well together. There you go. That was a very, you weren't expecting something that long, were you? <laughs> yeah, excellent. I have to admit, I was really, I still am, I'm really into the Templars. I used to get everything I could about yeah. them. And that was what attracted me. Your first book, I think it was in Waterstones in Blue Water when I was in, living in London. And I saw it, Last Templar. And I'm like, right, I'm having that. Oh, it's yeah. a Templar book. <laughs> <laughs> that's what got me into it and from that moment on every time it was like waiting you know just waiting for the next one to come out I can't believe you managed to write over 30 
<laughs> in all that time because it's a few years since the last one now isn't it so, yeah it, mm. it's 32 in the series uh the last one was a prequel which is all about the very end of the templars templars acre is very much the story of a young baldwin how a knight would have experienced his first battle how he would have got trained and how he would have been recruited into the templars and then the next book in that series was always intended to be following on so how would the templars inducted how were they trained everything else i also had several different side routes i was thinking about because there was a, a templar called roger de floor who was obviously quite prescient he saw that with the end of akka the uh, when the muslims took over the, the city he could see that there was probably not going to be too much good happening to the templars so he stole a templar ship a galley and started charging a fortune for all the women and children and any men in Acre to be able to escape made quite a bit of money out of that I think he went to Genoa or Venice after that but uh, basically he became famous as a noted pirate in the Mediterranean <laughs> which is yeah it's nice to see someone who's taken the oaths of poverty chastity and then becomes a pirate <laughs> yeah. so I thought he'd be an interesting character but uh, I've actually got half of book 33 in the series written but the difficulty is the way things are right now trying to get a new uh, a publisher interested in continuing a, a series that's mm -hmm. that long nobody really is that interested so I think what I'm going to do very likely is finish it off myself when I get time between writing other things and um, put it straight on to Kindle and see if I can get a paperback produced as well mm. yeah makes sense I mean, I I think uh, if I'm right, most of your murder mysteries come from the historical record. If that's the case, Devon seems to have been a particularly dangerous place <laughs> in the uh, in the reign of Edward II. Is it is that the case, or was it especially especially bad down in Devon? Or well, you have got the Midsummer Murders effect, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a writer, you need to invent new new deaths. Uh, I tend to use a lot of existing court cases and coroner's reports because it's a shortcut. I mean, I was always under contract for two books a year. Mm. So with that, if you've got any sort of shortcut that leads you straight into a theme, then that's going to help. My first books weren't so much based on actual historical accounts. They were really me pursuing my interests. So The Last Templar, I was interested in the Knights Templar then Merchant's Partner was really a story about persecution of elderly women uh, because they were accused of being witches because the neighbour wanted her pig or something. Um, <laughs> and then I went into markets and fairs with the abbot's gibbet. I had all sorts of different... And there were things that I was interested in. So I could start writing a book about them and that would justify me claiming tax-free uh, the cost of all my books. <laughs> work for me <laughs> um so I started researching that way and then it was when I got to live in Devon itself that I started thinking that there's so many legends down here it'll be interesting to try to use some of them and fairly quickly I got in touch with the Devon and Exeter Institution and the Devon and Cornwall Record Society and the Record Society in particular produces a book every year which has got some aspects of history in the area and one of them they brought out was about the Grand Ire of 1238, I think it is. And basically what used to happen was when the judges would wander around the entire country, listening to all of the felonies as they went, and 
basically, if if you do that and have to go around the entire country, it's going to take you 10 years to get back to the start point, which is what used to happen. So you would have these grand airs where the judges would turn up and they'd listen to all of the felonies that had occurred in the previous 10 years. So I've got this book, which is all of the felonies in Devon and Cornwall for 12, uh, pretty much the 1230s, mm. all of them. And it's fantastic. Mm. It is such a useful resource. I loved the summary at the beginning. It was, it was edited by Henry Summerson, I think his name was, who was a historian going back to the 50s or 60s. And he, he described the Devon folk as being suspicious, acquisitive, um, <laughs> and two other words which are really not complimentary to anybody in Devon. <laughs> but it's a fantastic resource, and I've used that for most of the last 20 books in the series. But then I also got a bit stuck into the politics of the time too, because you had Edward II's wife and he split up fairly dramatically over Piers Gaveston. Sir Roger Mortimer was Edward II's greatest general. He was one of the uh, main military commanders, very good uh, warrior. But um, he started getting a bit irritated with Gaveston too. And so he led some rebellions against the king, which the king didn't like too much. So he had him arrested, held him in the Tower of London, as you do. Um, and he's one of the only two people who's escaped from the Tower of London, managed to hoike his way over to France. At the same time, the Queen was very disappointed and um, she created a need for herself and her son, the future Edward III, to go and visit her brother in France. He was the French king. Mm. So they went over there. Um, immediately, she declared her husband wasn't fit to be king. Uh, started an adulterous affair with Roger Mortimer, came back to England, deposed the king. And you know, you've got that sort of situation going on. You can't leave it alone. You've got to get stuck into the politics. So I, I had the great joy of having Baldwin remaining loyal to his oath to the king, whereas Simon was much more suspicious of politics and disliked the king because of the dispensers and what they'd done to yeah. Devon and to mm. his, his own staff. So, yeah, built it all up. Yeah, the blend of, of local history and national politics works very well, I think. But all of the early books were very much local history rather than national. Mm. And it was a deliberate um, decision on my part, because I always dislike it when you pick up a book and the only people you ever read about are the abbots and the lords and the king and the queen. And I wanted to look at what it was like for real people on the ground. Mm. And It's like the old thing about... Um, if you ever talk to people about reincarnation and they believe in it, then you say, well, who were you in a past life? And yeah, oddly enough, it's always Napoleon, Josephine. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I was the guy who was digging up the dog poo from the side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things I really liked about your books. That it started with the local politics. And then as they got more senior in administrations and things, the national politics came into it. Yeah. But it's also, I think it was your books that I first read about the Great Famine. And there was, um, was it 13 hours? 13, 15 to 22, roughly. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way you incorporate that and the heartache and hardship it would have caused to the local area. Things like that. It just made it more realistic. And of course, with using real crimes, 
you actually, if somebody says, oh, that was that was too far-fetched, it would never happen. And you're like, right, this page. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I love using uh, all of the crimes that were committed by church people, because, yeah. Yeah. oh, that couldn't happen. Well, actually, here's the record. <laughs> <laughs> Delightful things. Walter II of Exeter, Walter Stapledon, uh, he was a good Devon boy, and he was Bishop of Exeter. But he didn't get confirmed in his position for about two years after he was actually given it because the friars were constantly causing difficulties and demanding that he shouldn't be allowed to be bishop. Why? Because when a certain Sir, I think it was Henry Raleigh, died, the Dominicans had taken him in as a boarder, as a sort of retiree. And the idea was that when he died, he would give them all of his assets if they would hold vigil for him and the funeral and do everything else and then bury him near the altar, because that was obviously pole position and the day of judgment comes. You want to be close to the altar. Mm -hmm. So he died. They put his body on the in the church, wax candles, very expensive, lots of expensive silks and materials, very expensive. And these were all the profitable aspects of a funeral. The only trouble was a bunch of thugs broke in, beat up the friars, broke the rood screen, stole the body, the candles, the silks, everything else, and oiked it off because they were canons from the cathedral. And the cathedral had a monopoly on all burials. They weren't going to let the Dominicans take their profits. So they took the body, the candles, everything else, held a funeral service at the cathedral, and then sent a messenger who said, you can come and get the body now. And the Dominicans said, well, you've got it, you can keep it. <laughs> and they didn't want it. So the canons had their staff pick up the body and carry it back to the Dominican friary. And the Dominicans saw them coming, so they barred the gates against them. So the canons, being good religious chaps, dumped the body outside. And this went on for days in the height of summer. So the castle staff started getting a little bit peeved about the smell and said, you guys have to sort this out. And eventually a rather shame-faced bunch of uh, canons collected up the bits and uh, buried it somewhere near the font. But it, it, I like to put that sort of thing in in there because you know you're seeing real life i mean yes it's yeah. company politics i suppose but if you've got a, a good friend of mine Susanna gregory always says if you've got roughly 30 percent of the population of the country working in the church you're going to have some crooks and you're going to have some thugs mm -hmm. it happens and the great thing is there's so many records of the uh, ecclesiastical court cases that you can go to and they will detail all of these badly behaved vicars there was the murder of the precentor of exeter cathedral Walter de Lechlade, he was murdered by a gang of 20-odd people just after Matins, walking across Cathedral Close. He was set upon and beaten and stabbed to death. This is about 1282, I think. Edward I was begged by the bishop of the time to come and listen to the case. So he, he came down and he listened to the evidence. He arrived on the day before Christmas Eve. He opened his court Christmas Eve adjourned it for Christmas Day and hanged six people on Boxing Day. And the reason was it was company politics in the church. The dean was uh, not just the dean, he was also holding on to the office of treasurer, which was corrupt. He was highly regarded in Exeter because his nickname was John of Exeter because he was born there, whereas the bishop was from Kent. Foreigner. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, you had this bickering going on between the two and eventually uh, Walter de Lechlade was elected uh, pre-centre by the bishop so that he could counteract the power and authority of the dean stroke treasurer and 
the dean stroke treasurer didn't like that so he had these bunch of thugs turn up who were the thugs well one was the vicar of ottery st mary one was the vicar of Hevitry. the nice thing is though that you also get a view on politics of the time because it's one of those rare times where somebody can go down in history for interesting reasons so the mayor of exeter who was henry laporta was hanged not because he had anything to do with it but the people who rushed into the cathedral close to murder, Delectrelade, got in by the south gate because it was unlocked after curfew. Exeter City, therefore, was complicit, so the representative of the city had to be hanged. Poor old Henry de Porter was the bloke. He had nothing to do with it whatsoever. But I think that shows a certain commitment to the roles and responsibilities of politicians. I, th I think it's a, an aspect we could reintroduce. <laughs> Be a dangerous life being a politician. <laughs> it certainly was then. <laughs> so you've got you've got all the a lot of detail on all these sort of medieval cases and so on. Yeah. But if you're actually writing the mystery, writing the crime story, how do you put that together so that it it's it's somebody's finding things out in a sequence? So presumably there's no forensics in, in that period. So You've got to presumably dream up evidence that matches that, that sequence of events to tell the story. Yes. And that's where it does get a bit more difficult. But you also rely much more on witness evidence, which is itself dodgy. You can't trust witness evidence. If, no. if you see something, then there's an automatic spark in the back of the brain that says, ah, oh, this, this must be the sort mm. of person who is guilty. But you have to go with the witness evidence that you can construct. And that can be difficult because you know, with Agatha Christie, she could start talking about times. Mm. I tried to think about ways of doing that, but realistically, it just doesn't work. So what you really come down to is a really strong bunch of motives for five or six people who could have wanted to do this thing. And then making sure that there's opportunity and means. Well, they all had means because they all had pointy <laughs> sharp things in their in their belts. So it's it's a case of just going through and trying to see how you can bring out the truth to the reader. Hmm. But that is part of the pleasure of it, as well as part of the uh, agony of being a writer, as, as you know. Yeah. I must say, through all the books, it's like, no, that's definitely the person who did it, and then it turns out to be somebody else. It's one of the main things about being a crime writer is misdirection. Yeah. I feel like I'm one of the conjurers, you know. I'm, I'm they, look at this, look at this, and all the time this hand's doing something totally different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The thing is, people can read books like mine from so many different levels. They can read them because they, they like the puzzle of the crime. They want to sort it out and show that they're cleverer than the author. Well, that's not difficult, generally. Um, they can read it because they like the history. There's a number of schools in America that started buying my books purely because it was giving their kids a much better feel for what life was like in the past. High mm. praise. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, reading just on the basis of pure entertainment, trying to not solve the puzzle or anything, but just enjoying the process mm. of how you go through a crime story. Mm. And there's the other level of entertainment, just reading it as a straight novel because you're interested in the people involved. Because it's one of the things that I've always liked doing is writing from the perspective of each of the different characters, not just the main uh, investigators, but all of the different suspects as well. It, it gets very difficult when you're putting yourself into the mindset of the killer without actually letting on. 
that's the most difficult aspect of it. But if you can do it convincingly, it's, I think, the most satisfying form of reading then. I don't change the history and I never put in things I know are wrong. What I will do is I will tweak situations a bit, but then I'll always put in a fairly lengthy author's note, which explains where I've tweaked and where I've cheated. Then I'll always give a bibliography so other people can go back and find their own... um, their own sources as well. Mm. I don't ever use websites on that because I've been burned by trying to research on the internet before. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. I don't know if you've found it. There was one time when I wrote almost the complete chapter. It was for Templar Zaka when I discovered on the internet that there was a bunch of uh, Muslim troops that were used by the Saracens who were and, and the Mamluks who were sort of stormtroops that would be sent up the ladders and they'd be the first onto the walls of the city and they'd slaughter everyone and open the gates. And and I found three different references to them on the internet. So I started doing some research and I went through all my books, you know, Dungeon Fire and Sword, and I've got books on the Siege of Jerusalem and mm. I've got books on the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Loads of stuff. Went through all of them, not a single source. I thought, this is strange. So then I started going through these three different websites I'd found that mentioned it. And it was a completely circular loop. Yeah. yeah. This website referred to that website, referred back to the first one. And I thought, oh, hell. <laughs> so I deleted that chapter because I didn't think, well, it might have been true, might have been right, but I couldn't find anything to corroborate it. So it couldn't stay in. But I always do have an extensive author's note, which explains where things have come from so people can go and do their own research if they want yeah i mean i think the way the internet does help these days is where they've digitized records and so Mm. on so it makes it much easier to to look at things and and search things than than it is when they're 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 printed or even handwritten as was the case i do find it very useful because what i'll do is i'll go on the internet to find references to other things then i'll go through their bibliography and very often i'll you can find the bibliography consists of a number of books that were written in the 40s and 50s Mm. most of them were bought really quite cheaply (laughs) on the internet but i i I do think also that the books that were written in the 40s 50s 60s by historians then tend to be so much easier to read there's very few modern historians i mean i class ian mortimer in this rank who are very high level writers who write in an exciting and interesting way about history. I've read his book, The Greatest Traitor, Mm. when I was researching one of my books, I forget which it was, and I was just blown away by the way that it was written, because it was written like a a thriller, and I couldn't put it down. I read the whole thing in one sitting. And I was so impressed, actually, that um, I wrote to his publishers and said, look, uh, I really haven't got the faintest idea where he is or anything, but... um, if you could let him know that I've read his books and I'd really quite like to have a chat with him sometime just about his researches into Edward II and the history of that time. And they wrote back very nicely and said, yes, yes, we've let him know. And then I had a phone call from him, which was delightful. He he, he actually bothered to take the time to phone me. And I said, oh, really, really good to hear from you. Um, I've no idea where you live. Where are you? And it turns out he's six miles away. <laughs> so ever since that day, we've we've met up quite regularly for beers yeah. at the pub halfway between us. <laughs> and we can chat about writing and complain about agents and moan about reptiles, sorry, editors, and uh, <laughs> all the other things. Oh, dear. So who was your favourite, Baldwin or Simon? Ah, uh, well, they're both me to an extent, so it'd be impossible to pick. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I do like both of them. Uh, I I love the irrationality of Simon, his slight superstition. Basically, his constant searching for an easy life, which is difficult when he's got a wayward teenage daughter and loses his job and things. So I like all of that. Yeah, wasn't there one book where he's earning so much money now that if anyone found out, he could end up being forced to be a knight and he didn't want yes. that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I wanted to put that in because it was a constant fear. That was a fairly serious thing <laughs> to happen to. Mm. Yeah, that was um, probably about the time of Death Ship of Dartmouth when he ended up being mm. keeper of the customs of the Port of Dartmouth. Poor devil. It was the worst thing that could have happened to him. Yeah, yeah, he didn't like Dartmouth. <laughs> well, he couldn't take his wife with him. He couldn't take his daughter or his son with him. His daughter was causing mayhem anyway. It was almost the breakup of his family. And he was really quite pleased when he lost that job later. <laughs> But it's the, it's the nice thing always of carrying on with these characters and going through time with them. And I haven't got to the sort of problem that Ian Rankin has where he's had to retire, mm. Rebus. I mean, my guys, I've, I've had many more deaths every year, so it makes it much easier for them. And I think that what you were talking about or asking about deaths earlier on. I do think that um, at this time, the murder rate in Devon would have been roughly the same as it would have been in Miami in the 80s or in Bogota in the early 2000s, because it was mayhem down here. You had gangs of trail baston, the club men, wandering around, beating up and murdering people. You had thuggish groups like the tin miners on Dartmoor who would beat up people and try to rob them. You had nightly men like the Folvilles and the Cotterills who would set upon and rob any travellers going near their castles. You know, it, it was brutal times. And at the end of the day, there were bodies everywhere. And you, know, you would often stumble over them. I, I always liked the fact that uh, when I was doing my researches, uh, the person who found a body was the first finder. And yeah. Very often, when the judges came to listen to the evidence about all the murders, they'd have the same first finder for three or four murders. How did you find all these bodies? And it was obviously very simple. The first finder, poor devil, was always immersed. He was fined to make sure he'd turn up at court when the judges turned up. Well, if you've already got... well. Simon down the road stumbled over that dead body last week. Here's another one. I don't want to get fined. Simon's already been fined, so he's going to turn up at court, so he won't get fined again. So, Simon, would you like to find another one? Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that straightforward. People were very sensible, I think. <laughs> but what got me was, for the legal system, it was a money earner. If somebody got murdered, you find the first finder, you find people keeping an eye on the body you find anybody who saw the body and I don't wonder how many people actually tripped over a body and then walked away and went no I didn't see anything <laughs> it's even better than that it's how many dead bodies could move I mean they had this lovely series of records where in one case there was a body that was discovered in a parish and they thought well, that's odd, because it looks like this body's been around for a while, and he wasn't there yesterday, so they picked up the body and took it over the boundary to the next parish where they felt it might have come from, and the next morning it was back again. <laughs> so you got all these parishes saying, I'm not, I'm not dealing with it, I don't want it, because it wasn't just, yes, you had the murder and fight, I mean, where we get the term murder yeah. from is from the Norman invasion. We didn't have murder before that. The murder and fine was the fine imposed for murdering a Norman. Before that, it was just mm. any kind of um, killing. 
but the murder and fine was expensive because if you were if you had people that killed an orland that was going to cost you and then there was the deodand the um, delightful fine for the value of whatever it was that killed Wait, I don't quite understand why the king felt that he had the right to take the value of the weapon, but uh, apparently it was for the offence to the peace, mm-hmm. and so they'd take it. That lasted through till the eighteen mm-hmm. mid eighteen hundreds. There was a case, for example, in Devon mm-hmm. where a cart and horse ran over a person and killed him. So the jury was called, and the coroner said, "Well, I find that the cart and horse killed the man, so that's." that cart is worth about two and six, so I'm going to fine the village two and six for Deodand. And the villagers said, oh, no, no, no. He was only run over by one wheel. The wheel is only worth threepence, so we'll pay threepence. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the value of the thing, it, it all stopped when a train and carriages killed a man and all the train companies said, we are not paying you the value <laughs> of all of that. All train, so yeah. Deodand was stopped from that moment. Okay, so... Um... 32 books how do you how do you keep 32 books fresh i mean how do you how do you how do you manage to keep keep it entertaining in a in a different way or or maintain the reader interest over that length because that's an enormous length of of a series isn't it it was interesting i was once doing a panel with good friend of mine philip gooden and somebody in the audience said so what is the perfect length for a series and phil said well no one can really maintain a series for more than 10 or 11 books and i nudged him <laughs> and said i've just written number 21 and he said apart from michael Jackson, <laughs> i think the main key is that every book has to be entirely different from the previous one so i have books such as for example Devil's Acolyte, that's quite a dark one. No Law in the Land is a very dark one. Mm. Um, And then again, I'd have Death Ship of Dartmouth, which was very deliberately humorous. And I loved that because every time I wrote about Sir Richard de Wells, the coroner, it made me laugh out loud. Very loud, very (laughs) crude, and just (laughs) hilarious to write. It really was. Keeping the books different keeping the focus of the books different so for example when i was writing friar's blood feud that was moving very deliberately away from the two main protagonists and moving on to one of their servants and looking at things from his point of view then again when i did bishop must die that was changing again that was looking very much at the actual events around the death the murder of walter stapledon again a politician who was dealt with by right-thinking citizens he was dragged off his horse <laughs> and beheaded with a bread knife yeah, that's, that's fair enough i think that's good <laughs> let that be a lesson to all treasurers <laughs> but um also i think making sure that each book works as a standalone book so you don't have to read all of the previous ones i mean we're all readers we all want to start with the first one in the series whenever you see a series Mm. that's that's fair enough but if you can write so that each book is a standalone so that some people can just pick it up and read it and feel satisfied then that is i think very key because it means each book is that bit more fresh automatically i think Mm. but uh, i think it's for me the book will get written when it's something i'm interested and excited by i was once told by a friend of mine when he looked at my bank balance he said uh, what you need to do mike is um, write about formula one or baseball because they're really popular and you'll get a huge readership 
yeah, but I'm not interested. <laughs> and the trouble is, if you're told to write about something you're not excited by, it'll be dull. Mm-hmm. And if you're not enthused about it when you're writing it, you can't enthuse a reader. So I've always had that firm belief. And therefore, I write what I want to read. I write the sort of books that I want to read and about the sort of people I'm interested in. When you have long running series like yours, sometimes when you're reading them, you get the impression that the author is getting rather bored of writing about the same people. Whereas with yours, the last one, Templars Acre or the one before it, they're all, they're just as fresh as the last Templar. It's not like you really do enjoy writing about Simon and Baldwin and you can tell that whereas with some other authors who've written such long-running series you get the impression that they're going when will this ever end (laughs) whereas with yours it's like I still want another book yeah I think it is it does come down to that single simple aspect I I write about the things I'm interested in and the two characters are they're the bedrock of my stories they are changing because they're changing as people as they have children and the children die as they lose friends or lose members of their staff mm. then they are they are changing with their environment which makes it more interesting for me because i can then look at how their lives are going but they're still the firm foundations of every story it's those two characters and their relationship which sometimes, I mean, yeah, I, I threw things out of it with mm. um, oh, one of the books. Simon and Baldwin really did not have a good time with each other. and Their friendship was tested to extremes. But that's life, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think readers like that. Yeah. I think readers like development. They mm. like they like change and they like to see where the relationship's gone and where it's going. Yeah. So I think that's and, a good thing. And it also makes it better for us as authors because we're developing those characters in our minds. I can't imagine, I mean, um, Ed McBain, fabulous series of books he, he's, he's written um, all about the whichever precinct number it is. I'm looking at my shelves there because his books are there, but I can't see. But um, brilliant, brilliant books. And the characters did develop, but he had a really odd way of doing it because he started writing his books, I think, in the late 50s or early 60s. And he had one character who was 32 and one character who was late 20s and one character who was about 40. And they stayed the same age, although the years changed. <laughs> so he was writing all the way up to the 1990s, I think. And the characters were still 32, 28, 40s, which I, I never got my head around. <laughs> no. With mine, I, I think it's more believable because you can see the development all the way through. I think it does help. Certainly for me as a reader, I like seeing character development coming through a series. I, mm. I don't want to feel that they're frozen in aspic. And as as I get older, I, I, I understand more mm. about the fact that characters age. And I want to show that in yep. what happens to them and how they cope with certain situations, particularly comparing it with when they were a lot younger. And they can't do things that they used to be able to do. I know. I quite like that aspect of it. I, I, I've got to put those things in. I'm like you. I, when I went deaf overnight, I, I, Baldwin started getting deaf. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I really did some damage to a knee and an ankle, um, falling over in a bit of mud. Pathetic though it is, Baldwin then got a few aches and pains. You know, these these things just it's realistic. It, and yeah, adding your own life experience makes their lives much more believable. Yeah, even if it's a bit embarrassing, you put in the more twerpish thing that you've <laughs> <Yeah>. done. <laughs> it's very sad that um, 
uh, I I once had to kill off Baldwin's dog because Uther was getting old, and um, I killed off the dog. That was quite sad, but yeah, okay. I cracked on with the story, wrote it, came out and published, and then I got an email from one of my brothers saying, "You killed my dog," because he knew that his dog was based. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. We have to mention your more recent series set in Mary the First Time in the Tudors featuring Jack Blackjack, um, who's sort of an accidental assassin but has a rather high opinion of himself. It must be really fun to write because I find myself laughing all the way through them. Good, that's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. The thing is that... Um... I was asked by my editor to think up at Simon and Schuster to think up something different other than the Templar series. I thought, oh, I don't really want to, but um, you know, Hundred Years War and Band of Brothers had been on TV, and one of my favourite books of biography is over there. It's Quartered Safe Out Here by George MacDonald Fraser, the writer of the Flashman series, and it's. A fantastic book. It's really the story of the last Edwardian army. It was uh, he was fighting uh, under Slim through the Burma campaign, so horrible, horrible campaign, but a fascinating book to read, and really depicts life of the old English soldier. So that was great, and it gave me this idea for the Hundred Years' War of Vintain, a platoon effectively of archers, and I had this idea of the march to Cressy and back the Siege of Calais the following year, and then 10 years later, the Battle of Poitiers. I thought that gives you a really good insight into the sort of characters there were in the British Army, and especially with Poitiers 10 years later, because that was after the Black Death. And I wanted to look at these characters and how they were changed by Cressy, then Calais, and then by the impact of the Black Death and what led them what had happened to them, what had happened to their families in the lead up to Poitiers. So really good. The only trouble is you start reading through Froissart and the other chronicles of what the British soldiers were like. Let me just say it's sort of slightly traumatic writing about those evil murdering <laughs> bastards. Um, so I, th I thought, oh, oh, this is so depressing. I've got to do something else in the middle. And I happened to meet Kate Lyle Grant, lovely lady who used to be the editor at Seven House. And we went out for a meal and I said, look, I've got this idea. She said, what was that? And I told her about uh, the John Gardner books. Do, do you remember the Liquidator series by John Gardner? Yeah, yeah. He had this idea of Boise Oaks, who was a government assassin by accident. Boise Oaks is a coward, uh, a womanising mm. coward who's got a very overinflated sense of his own importance, uh, but he hates blood and he cannot kill anyone to save his life. And I've always loved that series because it was just so funny. It, it was witty. It was brilliantly entertaining. Um, I've reread them recently, actually, and they're still just as good second time round. But I had this thought, that's a brilliant sort of character. I've got to use that somehow. And I basically pinched the whole idea but I thought, well, I can't write about it in the present day. But how about someone in history? And I thought, well, everyone was talking about the Tudors at the time because of the TV series. And I thought, hmm, Tudors, that could work. Henry VIII, no, too many people have written about him. Elizabeth I, well, no, more people have written about her. I said, who else could I think? And I thought, who was in the middle? Bloody Mary! <laughs> right. So Bloody Mary needs an assassin. <laughs> <laughs> and that was really the start point. 
and uh, the whole thing's developed from there. But he is just a great character. Again, I laugh out loud while I'm writing him because I, I think um, the joy of him is that it's all from his perspective. It's all first person. And what makes him funny is less what he's saying and what he's thinking. It's his interpretation of what other people or how other people are responding to him. And so he will almost invariably have a very highfalutin uh, opinion of what any woman feels about him. And yet the way I write yeah. him, you can see blatantly, obviously, they think it's a book. <laughs> That's just wonderful fun. <laughs> It's like when he ended up in Devon himself and he's like, he's a Londoner, so he thinks he's so much more sophisticated. Absolutely. <laughs> and he soon gets his comeuppance. <laughs> yes, he's such a great character. Well, I've also started modern day series too. Yeah, I'm interested in that because uh, I, I, I'm writing a, a modern thriller at the moment, All right. which is a, quite a departure. So it is different, isn't it? But how did you How did you get to that? How did you get to the portrait of murder? Well, I've had this idea knocking around in the back of my head for a long time, actually. it's um, You know how it is. If people want to write about present day, very often writers will do the bone idol thing and immediately write about other writers, um, which is fine. And it works very well for a lot of people. But it's all, it always seems like a bit of a cop out to me. Mm. Apart from anything else, most people aren't really that interested in the life of a writer because <laughs> what do you do? You sit at a desk. Daydream. Anyone can do that. Spend 10 minutes writing and 15 minutes in the hour avoiding writing. <laughs> well, the main thing is I, I can sit here and I can watch the world go by through that window. And and being a small Devon village, nothing's going by. <laughs> so I have to dream. <laughs> but the idea for this really came about because I was thinking, well, what sort of a different profession would be useful for an amateur? And what I came down to was a portrait artist, because it's someone who, as an artist, is going to be very analytical and capable of seeing things that other people won't necessarily see. Uh, the analogy I always make is I do an awful lot of sketching, because when I'm out and about, if I want to memorise a scene, I'll sketch it rather than taking a photo, because you take a snapshot with your camera, that's great, you can get a view on where things are if you sketch it you're analyzing well okay that tree is that big compared to that house and how does that look with the perspective going away mm. and it means you're forced to concentrate much more and it lodges everything in the skull much more efficiently and I thought well that's interesting but then with a portrait artist they're also looking behind the face and behind all the little mm. ticks and mannerisms and so, you know, it's the old thing about uh, looking at the character behind the face, isn't there? They say. So I thought that was quite an interesting one. And then I also thought a portrait artist is only going to be hired by people with money. Nowadays, that's just a simple fact. But mm. probably he'll be involved in, with politicians. He'll be involved with senior businessmen. He'll be involved with potentially Russian oligarchs and, you know, other crooks of various types. I just thought that was an interesting concept to, to see if I could explore. And um, it's a little bit like the Jack Blackjack Tudor series. It is a bit more um, tongue-in-cheek and <laughs> there's a lot more repartee from the lead protagonist, but it is a much more serious type of book. And in fact, when I put it up to mm. my 
current editor and i said that yeah it's a bit of a cozy crime really and she said no it's not and i said what do you mean said, you've got russians you've got smuggling you've got drug dealing you've got prostitution well seemed cozy to me <laughs> yeah yeah not a cozy crime <laughs> but um yeah they're doing well i'm very pleased with it i haven't got it yet but i will do well, thank you very much, Michael. It's been absolutely fabulous talking to you. Lovely to finally meet you. Thanks very much. Thanks ever so much. And uh, I'm sure we'll we'll revisit one of your series again, perhaps in the new year. That'd be good. We have a, a podcast episode occasionally where we go rogue. In other words, we, we go away from the Middle Ages. So uh, we, might, we, might, we might have a look at your Tudor series in a bit more depth. That'd be good. Yeah, hopefully you'd like him. But he's such a plonker. <laughs> I think there's more of me in him than there is of me in Baldwin's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's a likeable character. <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank you very much, Michael. It's been absolutely fabulous talking to you. Thanks a lot, both of you. Take care. Thanks very much. Thank you. And we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. So that's all for A Slice of Medieval today. Do join us next time when we will be talking to Justin Hill about Harold Hardrada, the Superman of the 11th century. I've been Sharon Bennett Tonnelly. And I'm Derek Burks. Thank you very much for listening today. And if you enjoyed our podcast, why not subscribe to ensure you don't miss the next one? Goodbye. Goodbye.